Welcome to Global IQ with The Economist. Today we'll be discussing Latin America 200 with Michael Reed, America's editor of The Economist and author of special report, Latin America 200. Michael is also the author of Forgotten Continent, The Battle for Latin America's Soul. I'm Jim Falk, president of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, and we're broadcasting live from Dallas this morning. Now remember that you may ask questions throughout the broadcast, so please send them to us through the online form located in the auditorium. I'd like to welcome our listeners, including subscribers to The Economist, members of the World Affairs Councils across the United States, Dallas Business Club members, and clients of our sponsors, Texas Capital Bank and Club Corps. Global IQ is sponsored by Texas Capital Bank, a Texas-based bank for businesses that think and act globally, and Club Corps, the world leader in private clubs. This program would not be possible without the willingness of journalists such as Michael Reed to participate and lend their expertise. Michael Reed is the America's editor for The Economist. He joined the magazine in 1990 as Mexico and Central America correspondent and has held many positions within the publication, including bureau chief and editor. Now, for the first time on Global IQ, we will have a contest where we will give away, thanks to our sponsor, Texas Capital Bank, copies of Michael's book, Forgotten Continent, to some of today's listeners. And we'll do this through uh, uh, some questions. So please stay tuned for your chance to win. Welcome, Michael. Uh, hello, Jim. Uh, good to be with you. Well, congratulations on your special report. I really enjoyed reading it, and uh, it certainly is timely with some of the uh, events that we've read about in the last few days, notably, and I think we can talk about that shortly, the announcement in Cuba yesterday. Many Latin American countries are celebrating this year the 200th anniversary of the start of their struggle for political independence against the Spanish crown. And as you describe in your special report, So Near and Yet So Far, which was published just this past Saturday, the economic performance of a number of countries, and notably Brazil and Chile, has been extremely strong, uh, particularly in light of the worldwide global reception. However, significant challenges remain for many of the countries, like Venezuela and Peru, uh, perhaps especially in political and social development. It, it must have been very difficult to write a report on an area that's uh, as diverse as with such powerhouses as Brazil to one of the poorest nations on the planet, Haiti. Uh, maybe uh, to begin our conversation, before we open it up to questions from our listeners, could you highlight some of your report's uh, uh, major findings? Yes, with pleasure. Um, indeed, as you say, uh, I mean, Latin America is extraordinarily diverse. I mean, there's a tendency amongst outsiders to imagine that it's, uh, 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 that it's just uh, a seamless whole. Uh, one always remembers that uh, Ronald Reagan, with that uh, beguiling simplicity of his uh, on returning uh, uh, from a trip to Latin America, and I think it was 1982, said you'd be surprised they're all separate countries down there. Now, well, that 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 uh, remark is actually rather profound, uh, and uh, there are indeed many uh, many differences. Um, uh, but I think one can also point to some important common trends, and that's what I tried to um, tease out in the in the report. I mean. Firstly, you know, many countries in the region, uh, in economic terms, uh, over the last few years have been doing much better than, uh, than they have for the previous 30 years or so, with um, the economies growing on average about 5.5% a year from 2003 to 2008, and importantly, inflation in single figures. 
and um, and many of the numbers going in the right direction. Now, that obviously took a hit with the recession, but the region has bounced back uh, strongly and quickly and is set to grow again this year by uh, by over 5%. So it's starting to do better than, uh, than uh, uh, the rich countries, the developed world. Now, that said... Um, there are some uh, important differences. I mean, uh, you know, Venezuela is on a different track. It's it's still in recession. Mexico was hit more badly in the recession uh, because of its close ties to the U.S. economy. And um, when one looks at, at sort of social and political uh, matters, then on the one hand, there are some very positive trends. I mean, uh, the faster growth is bringing down poverty. The democracy, which is now um, universal in the region except in, uh, in Cuba, even if it's under strain in some other countries, um, but democracy has brought better social policies and that with faster growth has brought a steady in- in- a decrease in poverty. Income inequality, which has always been extreme in Latin America, is starting to come down. But then you have some more negative trends, uh, uh, particularly uh, the question of uh, organized crime and violence and the weakness of police and the rule of law and judiciaries, which is of particular concern in Mexico at the moment, but uh, applies in, in, in many other countries across the region. And uh, another trend that I highlight in the report is that um, you know, there have been basically two reasons for two big reasons for the much much improved economic performance. One is better policies, and that's important, and it's important to celebrate that. But the other has been um, good fortune, if you like, uh, the uh, uh, demand from China for. Uh, the kind of commodities, the, the, the agricultural foodstuffs and, uh, and minerals uh, that Latin America produces, and uh, Chinese demand has pushed up their prices, and that's helped uh, the region's economies. Now, if you look beyond that, then you know, there are some uh, uh, deep-rooted problems that need fixing. I mean, you know, half the workforce in Latin America works in the informal economy, and productivity tends to be rather low. But to sum up, uh, I think uh, uh, you know, many parts of Latin America are, are, are finding their way. They're on a good track, and the important thing to do is to keep up the good work and to start tackling some of those underlying problems. Uh, you, you raised a number of points, and, and before we go into those, I'd, I'd like just to ask a very basic question, and it's one that you addressed in your book. How do you define geographically as well as perhaps culturally Latin America? Well, uh, geographically, of course, Latin America is not a continent. I mean, geographically, it's uh, South America plus Central America, and most of Mexico is indeed in North America. But, you know, what I took as, uh, as uh, um, uh, for the purposes of this report was um, uh, the, 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 the Spanish-speaking countries, uh, Brazil, which, of course, speaks Portuguese um, and has a rather different history than the Spanish-speaking uh, countries. Um, and I didn't deal with the, you know, with the English-speaking Caribbean um, simply because they have uh, uh, um, rather different problems, uh, 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 a rather different reality. Um, the uh, um, Culturally, I mean, I think there are many common threads in Latin America, although remember that you know, Brazil has always felt that it's not really part of Latin America. I mean, Latin America is a term invented by the French in the 19th century to distinguish it from uh, Anglo-Saxon America, if you like. Um, 
uh, and uh, Brazil thinks it's part of South America. But um, uh, in many ways, uh, over the last 20 years, as uh, Brazil's population has pushed in, uh, pushed towards the frontiers uh, of Brazil uh, and away from the coast, uh, and as uh, uh, as globalization has kicked in, then you know Brazil has many uh, and, and much closer ties to the rest of the region and is an integral part of it. Um, and uh, culturally, I mean, you know, each country is a separate place, as I said at the beginning. But um, but you know, there are there are, I think many common habits of thought in 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 in, in, in the region. You know, one of the things that I, th- I think we tend to forget is that in the middle of the 18th century, the economies of many of the Latin American countries were, were quite strong and not that dissimilar to that of the United States, but they quickly fell behind. What, what do you view historically were, were some of the main reasons for this early gap in economic productivity? Well, if, if one looks at the numbers, I think it's pretty clear that um, the Latin America did very badly in, 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 in two periods, in two particular periods. One was the, uh, the period from, um, from sort of 1820 to, to, um, or, or 1800 to, um, to roughly 1850, 1860. Uh, and that was partly because, uh, what would, uh, I mean, what had become the U.S. by then, uh, uh, began to have an industrial revolution um, but uh, the, the the other thing was that the independence struggles in Spanish speaking America and again Brazil is a different case uh, the independence struggles were much longer and bloodier and more destructive uh, than uh, the US war of independence uh, and it took longer to you know for the new states to kind of um, organize themselves and establish a minimum degree of um, stability so that was uh, uh, so so in, in the numbers suggest that in, in, in income and wealth terms, Latin America sort of started lagging behind the U.S. quite uh, quite uh, strongly then. Uh, it then more or less kept pace um, until 1982 when um, uh, the debt crisis hit the region. And some of your older um, listeners will recall um, that Latin America essentially went bankrupt then, having having in the 1970s kept um, uh, industrialization and um, sort of state-led protectionist policies going um, through through debt for the last uh, 10 years, through taking on loans. And uh, that all blew up uh, when interest rates went up in, in, in the early 1980s. And it really took Latin America a, a couple of decades to, to recover from that. And uh, the debt crisis brought you know, radical change of policy with the uh, adoption of what's often called the Washington Consensus. In other words, free market policies opening up uh, to trade and investment and privatization and deregulation and so on. And, but just getting inflation down and dealing with all the, dis- the distortions which had accumulated and, and achieving economic stability took a long time, and, and, and there was a considerable social cost involved. It's only really in the, you know, in, 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 since 2002 that um, uh, the region has, has found its way again with, uh, with the achievement of stability, low inflation. Um, the, the, 
the maintenance of the core policies of the Washington Consensus, but in a more pragmatic way with flexible exchange rates, um, uh, uh, much more prudent fiscal policy than in the past, and, and more emphasis on social policy on a, on a social safety net. And those are the policies that are really in place in, in most of the countries in the region, be they governed by the centre-left or the centre-right. Um, and um, the outliers there, uh, the dissidents uh, from that sort of post-Washington consensus that we have in the region now. The main dissidents are, of course, Hugo Chavez of Venezuela uh, uh, and uh, some of his um, uh, allies. And Eileen asks us right now, is the left-right divide in Latin America still relevant to the continent's future? I think it's increasingly irrelevant, actually. It's a good question. Um, I mean... You have had in many countries in the region in the last few years electoral victories for the left, and, and that's uh, uh, on the whole, I think, you know, not surprising, quite welcome in the sense that where you have a lot of poor people, they will, um, in, in a democracy, they will tend to vote for for for, for parties that promise to um, do some redistribution, and that's what's happened. I consider the most important divide in Latin America to be between between democratic reformers, be they at the centre-left or the centre-right, and, uh, and, and authoritarian autocrats. Uh, and so I think there's um, uh, more in common, you know, uh, Brazil's government, you know, which is of the left, has more in common with, say, Mexico's government or Colombia's government, which is at the centre-right, than it has with um, with uh, Venezuela, uh, because the differences between um, between governments of centre left and centre right are details and nuances. I think there's a fundamental divide with um, between between the democratic governments, which are trying to sort of move forward through reforms and through and through consensus building and strengthening institutions and so on, and and backing up uh, uh, an open capitalist economy with, 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 with a more effective state. And on the other hand, you know, the policies which, which Venezuela is pursuing are those of you know, uh, uh, state dominance of the economy um, uh, and government-managed trade, and uh, it's all about uh, strengthening the power of the presidency at the expense of other democratic institutions. And that, to me, is the fundamental divide. You know, while we're talking about democracy, and, and you said in your opening comments, democracy is universal. Um, there certainly are a number of elections that are going to be taking place over the course of the next several months. And in a sense, there's a, a real changing of the guard in Latin America. Could you comment on some of the key elections that, that are about to take place? Yes, well, we, there's an election um, uh, in uh, 10 days' time in Venezuela, in fact, which is a, a legislative election. I mean, it's important to recognize that uh, President Chavez is an elected president. He has won many elections. Uh, that doesn't mean that the form in which he governs is democratic. Um, but, you know, he has uh, the basic legitimacy of being elected, and, and his opponents sometimes forget that. Um, but uh, he has... Um, uh, done all in his power to change the electoral system to make life hard for the opposition and you know some of the some of the um, uh, opposition's leaders have been disqualified or are jailed indeed um, but the election for the legislative assembly uh, it's unlikely the opposition given those difficulties and given Chavez's continued popularity will um, 
will be able to um, win a majority in the Assembly, but uh, uh, in the National Assembly, but it will certainly uh, uh, become a large minority. Now, the we- a week after that, there's the presidential election in Brazil, in which it's uh, pretty certain that, uh, although Lula, who's been the president for the last eight years, uh, is not standing again. He, he didn't try and change the constitution to remain in power, unlike Chavez. Um, but he, what he has managed to do is um, uh, build up uh, the popularity of his chosen candidate, Dilma Rousseff, his former chief of staff, who looks as if she's going to win on the first round uh, of the election. There's so continuity there, although Dilma is not Lula. Lula is a, is a consummate, pragmatic politician. Um, Dilma is more of an unknown quantity, more of a technocrat, uh, perhaps a little bit more status than Lula but, uh, in, in terms of economic policy, but uh, we'll see. And then uh, there are elections coming up next year uh, in um, uh, presidential elections in Peru and in Argentina. And in Peru, uh, well, Peru's politics are a bit of a mess. The economy is growing very strongly, but the politics are, are, are a mess. Um, that election is quite open, uh, and, and, and we'll see what happens. Um, in Argentina, um, the uh, Cristina Kirchner uh, and her, her husband, uh, Nestor Kirchner, have governed for the last uh, eight years. They're unpopular, but the opposition's very divided, so it's not impossible they might um, uh, win another term. So, so I, I mean, I think the overall picture is that we'll get gradual evolutionary change rather than sort of radical uh, ruptures. Now let's try something new on Global IQ. As I said, we're going to do a uh, contest, and the first person who sends in the correct answer to this question will get a copy of, of, of your book, Michael. Um, so just send it in as quickly as possible. We'll see if you know the answer or if you're just going to go to Google. Google. I guess either one, either one is fine. So the question is to win a copy of Michael Reed's book, and please be sure to uh, tell us where you're calling from or where you're sending the question from. For which country did Benito Juarez write the Constitution? And the possible answers are Panama, Mexico, Ecuador, and Venezuela. Just last week, it looked like President Obama and Secretary of State uh, Clinton had sort of a disagreement on what was happening in in Mexico. Uh, Secretary Clinton said that Mexico is beginning to look like Colombia 20 years ago, and Mexico lodged a protest, and then a a day later or that same day, President Obama uh, retracted the uh, Secretary Clinton's statement. Um, How do you see what, what happened there? Well, I think that the situation in Mexico is extremely serious in, in, in terms of law and order and, 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 and the challenge of criminal violence and organized crime. I mean, Mexico is like Colombia 20 years ago in the sense that um, the most powerful organized crime groups, which uh, are based on the drug trade, which used to be in Colombia, are now in Mexico, and they are amounting a challenge to the state. Um, Mexico is not like Colombia in the sense that um, it's a uh, richer, more more, um, geographically integrated uh, country. There is not a guerrilla insurgency going on. Uh, There aren't the kind of organized um, uh, uh, paramilitary vigilante armies of the right um, that there were in Colombia and linked to the drug trade. Both the guerrillas and the paramilitaries were linked to the drug trade. Um, 
But also, uh, Colombia had some advantages that that Mexico doesn't have. Uh, Colombia, uh, Mexico is a federal country. Um, the police forces are uh, decentralized, uh, and the judiciaries, and and um, Colombia had a, a rather effective national police force. And also, Colombia's politicians really closed ranks and united against the threat of um, of um, the drug gangsters um, in a way that Mexico's have not yet done. Um, I think the situation is serious. I mean, the other thing that Hillary Clinton said was that was that you know vi- drug violence in Mexico is taking on the the, the um, uh, characteristics as uh, characteristics of an insurgency, and I think I think that's wrong. I mean, it's uh, it's um, it's not like the guerrillas in Colombia. But on the other hand, I mean, where there's an element of truth in that is that I think with um, the recent economic problems of the recession in Mexico and the fact that migration to the U.S. is much less uh, possible now, both because it's harder to get across the border and also because there are no jobs when you get there. Uh, and so that safety valve has, uh, has largely closed. Um, so I think you are getting some displacement of um, you know, unemployed or underemployed young men into the, in, into the um, uh, drug trade, and there's a kind of... Um, social uh, aspect to to, 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 to to the violence. I mean, Mexico, for its own uh, viability as a country, has to win this battle, uh, uh, and that goes through establishing uh, effective police forces and, 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 and judiciary and prison system in, 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 in Mexico. But the United States bears an awful lot of responsibility for what's happening in Mexico. I mean, uh, it's, it remains the largest single market for cocaine. Uh, the fact that cocaine is illegal in the United States uh, even though that has failed to stop um, uh, uh, its consumption, means that there are huge profits to be made. And, you know, Me- Mexico's gangsters arm themselves freely from gun shops in the United States across the border, and you can buy semi-automatic weapons of, you know, considerable uh, uh, ferocity um, over the counter. And um, uh, so, I mean, I think the U.S. needs to do more as, as, as well as Mexico on, on this. I'm afraid most of those, many of those are coming from, from Texas. Amanda from Dallas does ask this question. Uh, specifically, how would you evaluate President Calderon's efforts to combat the drug gangs and violence? And then she adds this. Do you see the spike in violence as a positive sign that the gangs are fighting over a shrinking pool of drug profits, or do you see it differently? Well, that's the, that's the government's argument. That's what officials in Mexico say. And um, there may be some truth in, in that. Um, I think certainly it's, um, uh, the government can you know, claim some success over the last year in starting to nab some of the um, leaders of the drug gangs. But I think you know, uh, one cannot stress too highly they, the, the core of the battle in Mexico is to establish an effective uh, uh, police and judicial system. Um, you will not wipe out the drug trade. Um, you know, that is impossible in this world um, uh, because of the nature of human frailty. You know? um, but what you can do is you can uh, reduce the, uh, um, what is a national security threat uh, uh, to uh, an ordinary problem of policing. And Mexico's an awful long way still from being able to do that. And where I think the government, uh, I, I think the government strategy, I mean, I think conceptually it was, it was, it was right that this threat had to, be, had to be tackled. I think 
there have been, but there's been a problem. The strategy was too narrow. I'm mean, just putting the army out onto the streets. Uh, ought to have been a temporary emergency solution, uh, uh, not a, 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 a semi-permanent uh, uh, um, strategy. Uh, I think uh, the execution of the central plank of the government's strategy, which is creating an effective uh, uh, federal police force and reforming the state police forces. I, the execution has been dreadfully slow and, and, uh, uh, and weak, uh, and one has to start questioning the competence of some of the people uh, in charge there. Um, uh, and the second thing is that I think it failed to see that the drug, gang, the drug gangs can continue to recruit because uh, unless you have an effective uh, strategy to provide legal opportunities for young underemployed Mexicans, then, uh, then they will drift into the gangs, and that's what's happened. So I think uh, there are some signs that the government realizes that, and it's tweaking the strategy. But um, uh, so uh, I think there are still question marks as to whether uh, it's still an open question as to whether things will get worse in Mexico before they get better. And in, in going back to Colombia for a moment, um, it seems like they're really mixed reports. I saw that the 2010 report of the UN Office on Drugs and Crime said that Colombia was still one of the world's largest producers of cocaine, and yet on the other side, um, many commentators have said that uh, former President uh, Uribe was very successful in reducing violent crime. Is how did he go? Was he successful? How did he go about doing this? And is it something that might be tra more transferable to Mexico than what we've seen? Well, I think it depends on how you define the problem. I mean, I think he was, um, I mean, Plan Colombia was sold to um, uh, Americans as uh, an anti-drug plan. It was always really an anti-insurgency, a counter-insurgency plan. And it was more effective as a counter-insurgency plan than as an anti-drug plan. I mean, uh, coca production, I mean, uh, 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 production of the, uh, or, or rather acreage, I mean cu cultivation uh, of coca leaf has fallen by roughly half uh, 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 over the last 10 years in Colombia. Um, how, you know, the drug trade is like any other business. It's innovative and, and it responds to shocks. And it's pretty clear that productivity has increased. So, I mean, uh, uh, Production, cocaine production, although it's fallen in Colombia, it, it probably hasn't fallen by half. And then, you know, it's merely gone elsewhere as well. I mean, that's why the war on drugs is so uh, futile in that sense. Um, uh, but, you know, Colombia faced uh, a problem similar to that of Mexico, but in some ways worse, of that it's, um, it was in danger of becoming a failed state. Uh, and I think that. Uh, uh, what President Uribe achieved is um, that he uh, he reduced the FARC guerrillas and their opponents from being a uh, a threat to this uh, to the survival of the state to a, a, an irritant, still quite a severe irritant in some parts of the country. But I mean, they're no longer a strategic threat. Violence has been ticking up again, uh, worryingly, in some of the urban areas in Colombia in the last few months, and that has a lot to do with um, uh, uh, the, the sort of reformation of criminal gangs amongst paramilitaries who demobilized. And it requires you know, constant attention, and it requires a lot more effort from the government on, 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 on 
putting in place policies that uh, allow the private sector to create jobs much more uh, rapidly and effectively in, 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 in Colombia. I um, want to congratulate Giovanni Nieto. He's with Yum Restaurants International. And, Michael, he gets a copy of your book. Well, I, I hope he enjoys it. Um. <laughs> and we'll have another question in a few minutes. You know, economist readers, and many of them are, are listening, are, are certainly familiar with the leaders' column. And in the one this week uh, addressing Latin America, it was suggested that the United States focuses more on, its, on, on the risk of its relationship with its neighbors more than the opportunities why, why do you think this is so? Well, I think, um, you know, because of the recession uh, above all and the fact that, um, you know, the economic difficulties in the U.S. and the fact that in the last 10 years um, the United States has, you know, fought two wars that have not gone particularly well um, and, and a general mood of um, perhaps looking inwards again in the United States and seeing, uh, I mean, those two factors, the, uh, the economy, the weak economic performance and, um, and uh, a more isolationist mood has led to, um, <coughs> excuse me, uh, has led to, um, you know, a lot of hostility uh, to, to, to migrants. Um, and that obviously creates problems uh, um, uh, in the relationship with uh, uh, with Mexico and Central America in particular, but the point I wanted to make in the, in, in, in the report was that um, uh, that uh, if you can look beyond the issues of migration and crime, um, the there, are, there there's a big opportunity in Latin America. I mean, the the region is. Uh, growing, as I said, uh, much faster than before in, in, in a way that looks more sustainable. Uh, and it's uh, in most places on the basis of, you know, free market policies. Uh, uh, um, uh, a lot of foreign investment is pouring into Latin America now. Um, uh, multinationals are starting to see uh, 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 the opportunity there. I and mean, you start to hear um, uh, business people talk not just about China and India, but about Latin America as well. And now, now, a lot of that is Brazil, of course, because of its size and because it's uh, after a long period of doing relatively poorly, it started, the economy started to grow faster than the regional average in Latin America. But, you know, it's true also of places like Chile, uh, Peru, Colombia, True, even of Mexico to an extent, that uh, you know the economy. Uh, I mean, despite the recession, I mean uh, the economy has not done too badly over the last uh, ten years or so. Um, you know, right now, with the points you've raised, is, is China filling the void from where the United States perhaps is not playing the role that it that it might? Well, uh, in some ways, yes. I mean, um, uh, in the sense that uh, China has very quickly over the last um, five years or five, six years become a very, very important um, uh, market for, for a trading partner for, um, for many countries in the region. But it tends to buy um, uh, raw materials, you know, uh, minerals uh, from Chilean copper, Peruvian um, uh, uh, copper, um, uh, Brazilian and Argentine soya beans, and um, Brazilian iron ore, and so on. 
But China is also becoming a, an important investor. I mean, last year, China uh, displaced the United States as Brazil's single largest uh, trading partner. Uh, this year, China is likely to become Brazil's uh, biggest single foreign investor. Now, um, is one, that primarily because of minerals and agricultural products then? Quite a lot of that investment is related to um, to minerals, or, or, or um, uh, and but but some of it increasingly it's industrial. So that I mean, there, uh, Chinese firms are investing in you know steel plants in Brazil, building car factories, even well motorcycle factories, and and, and there's a plan for a car factory. Um, so I mean, they're moving up the the, the value chain pretty quickly. Um, now you know I don't think there's any reason for. Uh, alarm in that I think it's good for Latin America. I mean, in, 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 in African countries, sometimes China comes in and it's the only game in town. I mean, in, in, um, uh, uh, and there are worries about sort of a new kind of economic colonialism. I mean, in Latin America, it's, it's one more foreign investor, albeit an important one. Uh, it's one more foreign market, albeit an, an important one. Uh, and many countries in the region have uh, quite diverse trading patterns and have long, and that's long been the case. So, um, but you know, on the other hand, I think I think there are implications for the United States because you know Latin America is traditionally a region of um, considerable where it's where it has had considerable economic influence. It's been an important market for American companies, um, and and I think there are also implications for Latin America itself because because um, you know the Chinese are are importing raw materials from the region. It's, the United States tends to be the main market for uh, manufacturers in um, uh, from from Latin America. So, so I mean I think there. Are, what I'm trying to say is that is that I think that um, the relationship between Latin America and the United States uh, remains important. And in some ways, it, it, it can be even more important than in the past. But it will be on a different basis. It will be on a much more equal basis, I think, than in the past. How, how detrimental has it been that the United States has been unable to ratify the free trade agreements with uh, Colombia and Panama? Well, I think uh, I think it certainly sends a negative message. I mean, not everybody in Latin America, in not everybody in the governments of, of Latin America, by any means, is particularly keen on on free, a free trade agreement with the United States. But but you know, some of some of those who can. Who consider themselves to be friends of the United States in the region, such as the government in in in, in Colombia and Panama, feel certainly that you know um, it sends a very negative message when um, when when those agreements cannot be um, uh, ratified. And I would just say to to you know in, in terms of the I mean the agreement on Colombia. I mean the the. Some of the opponents of that agreement um, argue that it should not be ratified on grounds of violations of human rights in Colombia. Well, you know, it's obviously a concern that um, uh, human rights continue to be violated in Colombia. But, but um, in the medium term, I mean, the, the way in which you are going to uh, uh, strengthen the respect for human rights in Colombia, I mean, includes strengthening the legal economy in Colombia in relation to the illegal economy. And and uh, and to the extent that the free trade agreement will do that, it will help human rights and, and not hinder them. So I think that's a misguided argument. I think you've touched on this, but I'd like you maybe to expand a bit more. Jorge Marin asks, what do you consider might happen to the Latin American region once higher demand from countries like China goes away? And I guess he's presuming that it, it, it will, which may not be the case. 
Yeah, I think that's that's you know one of the fundamental questions facing the the, the the region, and I devote quite a lot of the report to that. I mean, there are dangers in commodity dependence. I mean, um, uh, to a certain extent, um, uh, it's entirely right and natural and positive that um, that um, uh, you um, produce and export lots of commodities. That's part of comparative advantage if you've got them right, uh, and right. it brings in foreign it brings in foreign exchange, it brings in tax revenue. But I think there are two main problems. Um, um, uh, well, really, one main problem actually, which is volatility. I mean, commodity prices tend to go up and down much more than the, than prices for um, for manufactured goods. And you know, one day um, China, uh, the Chinese economy will will sneeze, and and, and um, you know, parts of Latin America risks catching flu in the, in those circumstances. And and indeed, as China eventually gets richer, its demand for raw materials will 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 will, will reduce. Now, I mean, that's why I think it's important for um, for countries in Latin America to to try and address some of their problems of low productivity in manufacturing and services, uh, in order to reduce uh, uh, the risk that um, uh, that of commodity dependence, uh, and that requires returning to uh, uh, the issue of you know, reforms of things like the labor market, of more investment in infrastructure, more stress on innovation, on research and development and so on, where the region has traditionally been quite weak, more stress on education, um, particularly improving the quality of education. I mean, there's been a big advance in um, uh, in coverage over the last two decades, uh, but uh, the quality of public schooling in in, in the region uh, remains very poor. And uh, although there's, I think the first the first positive step is that at least people realise that now and talk about it. But uh, but you know you need to go from talk to to action now. And, and of course, as you mentioned, volatility, but also manufacturing jobs provide lot lots more employment opportunities. Well, that's right. Indeed. So, I mean, uh, um, uh, one, one. I mean, the ideal should be to to use the uh, the foreign exchange and the tax revenue that the commodity production provides to to um, to create the conditions for for, for diversification in the economy uh, uh, and to benefit more labour-intensive um, uh, sectors. No. Michael, I want to remind our listeners about some exciting events that are taking place that are sponsored by the Economist. Uh, the 2010 Buttonwood Gathering, that's going to be um, in, in New York on October 25th and 26th, and I hope that many of our listeners will, will go to that, and you can get a, a wonderful discount provided by The Economist by entering BW-WAC, off the, and that'll be a, a discount off the standard registration fees. And then also there's some summits taking place in Mexico and Brazil on October 5th and November 9th. Could you tell us about those? Well, yes, I'm going to be in Mexico. Actually, I mean, uh, there's a, it's an economist conference looking at uh, looking in, you know, trying to grapple with um, with um, how uh, serious the situation is in Mexico, and and, and but also sort of look at some of the more positive things that are going on. And, uh, Who are some of your speakers that are going to be there? I'm sorry. Who are some of the speakers for the summit or the conference in Mexico? Um, it's. Uh, 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 I'm going to have to refresh my memory on that, but uh, it, well, it includes um, Marcelo Ebra, the, the, the mayor of Mexico City, whom uh, who's likely to be a presidential candidate in 2012. Um, 
the um, uh, chief executive uh, officer of the CEO of Grupo Bimbo, uh, Daniel Service, um, and uh, Alexandre Hohagen, who's the managing director for Latin America of Google. Uh, uh, and then in Brazil, there's a meeting later, uh, in, well, in November, which will come after the election. And it's all look particularly at the at, uh, you know, sort of business view of um, of Brazil at the moment. Great. Well, we want to encourage all of our listeners to take a look at that on the Economist website and consider attending either the Buttonwood Gathering or the conferences taking place in Mexico and, and, and Brazil. Uh, all of us woke up this morning with headlines about Cuba. Um, looks like there's going to possibly lay off over a half a million uh, workers, and is, is this the beginning of a, a slow move towards privatization of the economy? <laughs> Excuse me. Um, yes, I think it is, actually. I think it's really very significant. This. I mean, um, it really does look like, finally, the government has, um, has um, well, bit, bit, bitten the bullet, to use the cliché, um, um, of reform. I mean, since Raul Castro became president in 2006, um, uh, uh, or stepped in when when Fidel um, was taken ill, um, uh, he it's been pretty clear that uh, that uh, he and the people around him believe that uh, Cuba needs to move towards. Um, uh, an economy in which um, uh, there is more private activity, um, but there's been a lot of resistance I mean, uh, uh, and a lot of inertia, and also I think a lot of um, fear uh, amongst uh, uh, Cuba's leaders about what happens when you start tinkering with the system. Does it all fall apart? Uh, I mean, having introduced very limited experimental steps in um, in more private, uh, um, in allowing more private uh, economic activity, particularly in farming uh, and in some small-scale services like hairdressing and so on, uh, this now looks as if it's going to happen um, on quite a large scale. Um, now, it's quite, the question will be to what extent um, are, are, are small businesses going to be encouraged to really thrive and become sources of employment in Cuba, or to what extent is this a very grudging uh, um, uh, uh, step and, and all kinds of um, obstacles will be placed in the way of those small businesses because when something similar on a more modest scale took place in the early 90s after the collapse of the Soviet Union and the drying up of its subsidies to Cuba Fidel Castro did allow small businesses in some areas of the economy but they faced constant harassment because because of his ideological distaste for them but I, I think Fidel Castro's remarks to an American journalist uh, 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 a week or so ago that the Cuban model doesn't work anymore. I think those you know, were, um, however much they may have been slightly misinterpreted. Uh, I mean, he was uh, presaging this announcement, uh, which is the beginning of a move towards a mixed economy of, you know, I think far-reaching economic and political implications in Cuba. Though, you know, it will take time. It will play out gradually. You follow this so closely. What do you think is the state of Fidel Castro's health? Is he going to be around for a few more years? Um, I think it's pretty clear from um, uh, from the video and and, and, and photos and uh, of, of his recent public appearances uh, and the testimony of those who've met him that. Um, 
he has physically uh, recovered from, uh, um, I mean, by all accounts, uh, at the end of 2006, because the initial operation on his um, uh, uh, intestines was um, botched, um, he almost died um, of peritonitis. And, um, and another operation was done, and that seems to have been successful. But I think he was clearly very debilitated by that whole process, and his convalescence, his physical convalescence, has been uh, has been slow. Uh, he now seems to be um, uh, physically okay, but you know, frail, uh, perhaps frailer than a man of his um, uh, age uh, might uh, might normally be. Uh, and mentally, I think he's lucid, but uh, it's clear that he's not quite as uh, quick and sharp. But then, uh, but then, um, that's not surprising, perhaps, uh, given his age. Mm-hmm. We have time for another question to win one of your books, uh, The Forgotten Continent. The question is: What makes the South American Atacama Desert one of the driest places on Earth? Is it the altitude of the desert, the acid rains? the proximity to the Andes Mountains, or the lava flows. So remember, be the first one to send in the correct answer. Tell us uh, where you're from, and you'll win a copy of Michael Reed's book. Michael, one of the things I I read in preparing for this and also reading your special report is some of the efforts that have been taking place over the course of the last few years to create a uh, more of a regional economy, um, the union of South American nations, uh, known by, I guess, UNASUR, was the Established in 2008, um, is, is this an effort to try to replicate the European Union? Yeah, I mean, politicians in Latin America always talk about trying to replicate the European Union. I think misguidedly, because the European Union uh, came out of very specific circumstances of history and geography. Um, I mean, uh, I, when I give talks, I, I like to show a slide. Um, which shows that the whole of the European Union um, in its extended form of today, um, including the Eastern European countries and so on, um, fits geographically inside Brazil alone. I mean, the distances in Latin America are vast, and that makes it much harder to achieve successful integration. And there are big geographical barriers like the Andes uh, and, and like the Amazon and so on. And, and, you know, the European Union was forged out of um, the terrible history of warfare in 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 in, in Europe that persuaded um, uh, uh, politicians that they had to set aside national sovereignty. You know, um, and and that simply has not applied in Latin America. But um, <laughs> excuse me. Um, but that said, I mean, certainly there was a there was a serious attempt in the 1990s to set up. Uh, uh, free trade areas and 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 and, and so on, and sub regional groups, and so and some considerable progress was made on economic integration there, even if it fell uh, inevitably uh, quite a long way short of of, of the European Union. Um, the, many of the left wing governments, when they came into power, were not particularly interested in that, and they were more interested in a more sort of government led approach. I think what's happened over the last um, few years is that um, as economies uh, have been opened up as um, companies have uh, expanded and um, as they've had to compete um, in in the world economy. Um, then they've sought the benefits of scale and they've started moving, uh, and that's involved them, you know, boundary hopping, moving into neighboring countries. So you now have, 
you know, a large group of, of Latin American multinationals that, you know, may, they may just be in two or three countries or they may be in the region as a whole and beyond the region, you know. Um, and, uh, and that process has really, really gathered steam in the last, uh, in the last few years. So that, you know, often, I mean, the political leaders get together and they talk a lot about unity and, and yet in some ways there have been more regional conflicts than ever before in the last few years. But beyond that, beneath that, uh, on the ground, uh, you know, business, I think, is is integrating fast. Uh, and that's a very interesting process. And I think it will eventually be reflected in the politics as well. One of the things that you raised in the report, too, is how businesses in Latin America are awfully uh, controlled by very influential family-owned conglomerates. Uh, we certainly see that with one that has large operations here in Dallas, the Grupo Bimbo. Um, Tell us a little bit more about how these um, family conglomerates are, are, are structured. Yeah, I mean that's been the you know the traditional um, model for for businesses in Latin America, um, and uh, it's partly been because of the lack of kind of uh, capital markets historically. So you haven't had a kind of equity capitalism um, as in the U.S. Uh, you've had weak stock markets. Um, it's partly been a defense mechanism against kind of political uncertainty and uh, volatility. You know? um, I think what's, you know, what's happened over the last um, 10 to 15 years with the achievement of economic stability, the, you know, the, the growth of banking systems and capital markets in the region, you've had these family groups going to the stock market. So they, they list publicly, uh, but even if the, um, the, the, uh, the founding families or, or, or or a group of families uh, uh, maintain control, and that that kind of hybrid combination of uh, uh, a publicly quoted family-controlled um, uh, business, I think, is very interesting, and uh, it has quite a lot of strength. Um, I mean, it, at its best, it combines the um, kind of financial discipline and corporate governance which which um, a stock market listing ought to provide with the kind of speed of decision um, and uh, uh, that you know family own uh, and the ability to take a long term view that, exactly. uh, that family right. ownership uh, uh, um, in, uh, provides so i think it's a you know it's a very interesting uh, hybrid model which is becoming quite uh, characteristic of the region not so much running the company from quarter to quarter, which we see so much um, with, with some of the other companies. Well, indeed, uh, in, in, indeed, and and also I think it um, potentially gets over. I, I mean, you know, these family groups long ago brought in professional managers, but I mean, uh, uh, and and the family members who are involved in the companies tend to be, you know, they they have nowadays they will have they'll have MBAs and so on themselves, you know, but um, but. Potentially, it gets over the, the, the you know the principal agent prob problem in which um, managers tend up uh, end up uh, uh, getting a lot of the benefits which ought to go to shareholders. No? This is an interesting question. Martha asks, "How is Costa Rica's first female president, Laura Chinchilla, doing so far?" She says she reminds me of Sarah Palin. <laughs> I, I, I assume that uh, she's talking about a physical resemblance and not a political resemblance. Perhaps, perhaps. <laughs> but uh, because I think uh, Lara Chinchilla's politics are a little bit different from those of Sarah Palin. But, um, 
But no, I mean, I think Costa Rica in general is, you know, it's one of those countries in the region that um, stands out for being uh, fairly successful. It's fairly egalitarian by the standards of Latin America. It's uh, the economy has been growing quite strongly. It um, it uh, faces the challenge that in general Central America. Um, faces the, you know, the, the difficulty of dealing with organized crime. Um, uh, that's less uh, prevalent in Costa Rica than in you know, Guatemala or El Salvador, but it's, it's still an, or Honduras, but it's still, a, still an issue. Um, and, um, uh, but, you know, I think Costa Rica is one of um, a group of countries in the region that is uh, well-placed to, to move fairly swiftly to, to to becoming a developed country over the next uh, 10 to 15 years. I want to congratulate Bill Skeeters from Dallas. He is the winner of the second question and gets a copy of your book. And the correct answer to what makes the South American Atacama Desert one of the driest places on Earth is the proximity to the Andes Mountains. Indeed. One well, might add the proximity to the, 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 the cold Humboldt current offshore. But, uh, yes, well done uh, uh, to the reader. Tell us about Honduras. I mean, that certainly was in the news a little bit over a, a year ago. Has, has that been forgotten, or are you beginning to see? Really, has I think it was Brazil. Have they reestablished relations? And, and what's, no, they what's haven't. There? They've taken, they've taken a, a very sort of hardline position on Honduras, um, uh, which I think is to some extent misguided. I mean, um, the um, certainly. I think the the fact that an elected president was removed um, uh, uh, by the army, even if the army was acting at the behest of the Congress uh, and the electoral authority or the, the courts, um, still it was you know it was a it was a bad thing. It was a it was a, 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 a negative precedent. Uh, but equally, it wasn't the worst thing that's happened in in in, in the region ever. You know and. Um, uh, an election was held. Um, uh, there's a new government in in, um, in Honduras, which, as far as one can tell, more or less represents the you know the, the, the will of the people. And and it's interesting that Honduras's neighbours in Central in Central America have re-established ties and want the rest of the world to re-establish ties because Honduras faces um, some you know serious difficulties. Um, uh, including the the crime issue which I referred to, and um, it uh, it's going to be able to cope with those difficulties more effectively if it uh, you know, if it has a resumption of foreign aid and so forth. Uh, and Brazil has opted to take a position of principle, which you know I, I repeat I think is misguided. Uh, and Brazil has nothing at stake directly in Honduras, um, and um, one hopes that. Um, it will find its way to, you know, restoring relations uh, 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 as soon as possible. But Michael, do you see a, a time when Brazil will have a permanent seat on the Security Council? And uh, how important is that? How would that be viewed by other countries in Latin America? Well, I hope it will. I mean, you know, however much one might um, criticize some specific aspects of Brazilian foreign policy, I think there's no doubt that, you know, Brazil is... Uh, uh, one of the most important countries in the world. It's going to become, uh, over the next 15 years, it will probably become one of the top five economies in the world. Um, it's the fourth largest democracy already, with you know, almost 200 million people. It's playing an increasingly active role in, I mean, in 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 peacekeeping. For example, in the in the Haiti mission, which it's led for the last few few years. 
It has uh, its its aid program in Africa is interesting and expanding. Um, <coughs> I think you know certainly. Uh, I mean, time was when Argentina would have looked askance um, at Brazil uh, rather than it uh, being um, accorded the distinction of a Security Council seat. But I think there's no it's no contest now, and Brazil is much more important than Argentina. And I think it's um, uh, 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 I think most people in the region recognise that. Um, well, they've certainly been taking a, a larger role on, on the world world stage, uh, certainly with I- Iran. But I thought it was interesting to see a comment by the foreign minister who said that uh, our, our 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 fingers got burned when we stepped into the uh, Iranian n- uh, nuclear issue. Yeah, I think I think Iran was the first big mistake that uh, in foreign policy that uh, that Brazil made. I, I think it's um, rather naively. Uh, uh, attempted to uh, to broker a deal where um, it wasn't like other people hadn't tried to negotiate with Iran before. But also, I mean, you know, Brazil has no vital national interest at stake in Iran, and and um, Western Europe and, and and the United States think they do have a, a vital national interest there. And, and I think it was a mistake, and I think it set back uh, Brazil's. Um, uh, uh, the momentum, the momentum behind Brazil's bid for Security Council seat. But I mean, that said, I think you know Brazil is right to feel frustrated that um, that uh, uh, there's been absolutely no progress on reforming the Security Council for for, for several years um, because of a series of kind of vetoes um, by by some countries against other countries and so on. And, and the longer this goes on, I think the more the more dangers there are actually, and the more frustrating it may be. I mean, that frustration may lead some people in Brazil to think the country needs nuclear weapons, for example, which is something which it has constitutionally renounced. And I, I think it would be a good example for the world if a, if a large and important country like Brazil that has renounced nuclear weapons acquired a, 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 um, a permanent seat on the Security Council. Though, it, 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 I mean, Brazil needs to realize, and I think it does, that you know, responsibilities go with that as well. We have time, just a few more minutes, so I want to do one more trivia question. The preeminent short story writer, O. Henry, is credited with coining the term Banana Republic in 1896, describing the country he lived in at the time. In what country was O. Henry living in 1896 to 1897? Uh, Ecuador, Honduras, Nicaragua, or Panama? And remember, if you're the first person to answer this question correctly, you get uh, a copy of um, Michael Reed's book, The Forgotten Continent. Is there any hope, Jorge Marin asks, is there any hope that Argentina will come back to its economic performance that it had prior to the 2002 economic crisis and and its loan uh, default situation? Well, the Argentine economy has been growing uh, fast um, until the recession. It's recovered strongly. There are, I mean, one has to be slightly cautious because um, because um, the government has been um, manipulating the figures. The, the the official statistics are not credible in Argentina. Inflation is, I mean, it's pretty clear that inflation is 25% or so and not the 9% the government says it is. Um, they may be overstating the, the, the economy's growth, although probably not by much. A lot of that... Um, uh, uh, um, growth comes from high prices in the world for farm commodities, which Argentina produces a lot uh, uh, very competitively. But, but I mean, the big worry in Argentina, and why I think um, 
a lot of outsiders are skeptical about uh, about Argentina is that is that the 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 doubt is over the sustainability of the government's policies. I mean, they have harassed private uh, investors. Uh, they have nationalised the pension system and are using uh, uh, pension money to to pay the government's bills, basically. Um, and uh, they've started, you know, they raided the central bank's reserves and um, uh, 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 in order to pay government debt. Um, and uh, if if uh, now, as long as you know, world food price, prices stay high, I think Argentina will continue continue to do quite well. But um, but uh, for business, it's a big problem that you never quite know what um, what the government's going to come up with next, and that deters people from from investing. No? And there's still there, you see that in there's still capital flight from Argentina. Um, but I mean, I think if you had more um, uh, more stable and more viable uh, policies, then I think Argentina uh, uh, has uh, would have a good chance of. Uh, of matching the performance of Brazil and Chile, and you just look at the foreign investment numbers between. Uh, I mean, Chile gets um, uh, a lot more foreign investment, even though its economy is much smaller than Argentina, and that really says it all. Well, excellent, and I also want to congratulate John Rutledge, who is the winner of uh, the trivia question number three. Uh, o. Henry uh, was in Honduras, and he was fleeing the law at the time, and he gets a copy of the Forgotten Continent. Michael, thank you so much for spending your year in, in London today, for spending part of your afternoon with, with us and our listeners. We certainly appreciate it. Well, thank you very much indeed, Jim, for uh, such an enjoyable and interesting conversation, and um, I, I really appreciate the interest of your of your listeners. And I know hopefully many of them will meet you soon, either in at, at the Mexico conference or, or at Buttonwood in New York. And uh, want to remind all of our listeners, if you're not yet a subscriber, please go today to Economist.com to start your subscription. And don't forget to pick up a copy of Michael's book, Forgotten Continent. Uh, I've been reading it. It's excellent. I'll give you a really good sense of the history and the transformation taking place in Latin America today. And that's available on our auditorium or by going directly to Amazon. Global IQ is a presentation of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth in association with The Economist. Today's broadcast was generously supported by Texas Capital Bank and Club Corps, and special thanks also to the World Affairs Councils of America and the Dallas Business Club. Please join us on October 29th for our next broadcast. We'll be discussing international business hotspots, forecasting economic growth around the world with the Economist Intelligent Unit's Director of Global Forecasting, Robert Ward. You can register for this by going to dfwworld.org forward slash globalIQ. And remember, together, the Economist and the World Affairs Council put you on top of the world.